Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we have part three with Dr. Mike Isretel from Renaissance Periodization. I'm going to link both of the previous episodes in the show notes if you haven't heard those. Both of those were kind of... Um, all around Q&A style. I mean, Mike is a wealth of knowledge, especially when it comes into hypertrophy. I think he is probably the leading uh, person, <laughs> professional inside the world of hypertrophy when it comes to research, when it comes to practical theory, when it comes to programming, things like that. So he's a, he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to building muscle. And we dove into a bunch of different topics on both of those podcasts, um, ranging from volume to exercise selection, to periodization, to nutrition for hypertrophy and all those things. So I'll link those in the show notes. But today we actually dove into a specific thing that he has been kind of digging into uh, as far as researching and creating some kind of practical application with. And it's this thought process of how we can gauge if what we are doing is actually working while we're doing it. So there's different stages of training and there's the literally the reps that we are doing. There's multiple sets. There's a day or session. There's multiple sessions and then there's full programs. And how do we get to get to the point where we actually understand that we are making the right moves, doing the right things, creating enough stimulus, not too much stimulus, engage all these moving parts so that we don't get to the end of a program making zero progress and not knowing why. Right With these steps and with this way of gauging and assessing, we can know that what we are doing is going to lead to the greatest benefit possible, the greatest result possible, um, and it's using these tools that he explains in this uh, podcast today. So really, really informative episode. Uh, we discussed that the whole entire time and dove into a couple other topics around exercise selection, uh, positioning of your joints while you're training, RIR, going to failure, things like that throughout the podcast as those things came up. So a lot of good information. This is going to be a great episode for you to listen to if your goal is strength and hypertrophy. Um, If you like this show, make sure that you head over to Instagram, post a screenshot on your story, tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag Dr. Mike at RPDrMike. All one word. I'll put both those in the show notes of this podcast so you can see. And without any further ado, let's get on to this episode with the one and only Dr. Mike Isretto. All right, so break down this this whole concept to me and what you're looking into right now, and um, I guess the mechanisms of how you're looking into it or how you're recording it, and then from there, why that's useful for hypertrophy. Yeah, so there's um, there's always a question in hypertrophy training, of I suppose on any training, of am I doing the right thing? <laughs> like uh, someone could see you doing leg press and you've done one rep so far. And your feet are in a certain position on the platform. And they go, hey, man, like, is that a good place to put your feet if you want to grow your quads? Like, you know, you could tell them, like, nominally, you could say, yes, because <laughs> you think that. But then after doing that one rep, let's say you rack it and you think about it, like, hmm, how am I so sure that my quads are getting hit better than other positions, for example? And then someone could uh, ask you after a set of chest flies, like, hey, did that really hit your chest? Uh, let's say they offered you a different grip to try. Like instead of holding dumbbells out here, you hold them like this or something. And they're like, 
we think better for your chest? They didn't really expect an answer that you only had one set of information to collect. It turns out, you know, maybe we can give them some kind of insight and thus ourselves as to whether or not that's a really good idea. Multiple sets. Someone puts you through a leg workout they have or a bicep workout, uh, let's say five sets of a certain exercise or three sets of one, three sets of another. At the tail end or midway through, they could be like, what do you think, man? Hitting up your biceps? Uh, to what degree are you comfortable saying, yes, this is amazing? Or yeah, it feels pretty good, I think. Or like, dude, this sucks, right? Um, it's highly underwhelming. Because you know, I've, I've been through, put through multiple workouts or this isn't, someone doesn't have to interact with you for this. It could just be just you. Like you design your own workout. Are you asking yourself at the end of every rep, set, multiple sets, am I really doing as good of a job as I could be? Or a reasonably good job? Or is there something lacking, right? And then the timescale moves even further, you know, between workouts, right? Uh, you know, in a preview of what we'll be talking about just a little bit. You know, like if, if you got, uh, if you had trouble hitting your quads, like actually stimulating them through a bunch of movements and you found a workout and the, the day later, your quads are physically sore for the first time in years, you should be pretty confident you did something, right? Whereas if you have, you know, used to getting your quads pretty sore after workouts and someone's like, bro, try this crazy quad workout. And two days later, you feel nothing in your quads, like, you know, um, could you be growing more because you're not overdoing it anymore? Sure. But are you enhancing the stimulus? Probably not. Right, and then at the uh, end of that rung is um, much later is between mesocycles, and this is an easy one, uh, which we'll cover at the end. Between mesocycles of training, so at the end of an entire mesocycle of training, uh, are you, uh, you know, can you say you've grown muscle? And there are ways to do that. So the really cool thing is, is there's these multiple time scales, all the way from a single repetition, or even inside one repetition. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. All the way out to a whole, you know, mesocycle, which is like a month or two of training, and at, at various time points in in within that time scale, uh, at various scales within, you can be checking boxes, basically like a check plus, check or check minus system. Uh, of am I doing a reasonably good job of stimulating muscle growth in the target muscles that I want? And if you check all the boxes with check pluses the entire time, gee, you know, you're at least on the stimulus side doing enough to grow muscle, whether or not your genetics have topped out already, or you're not eating enough protein and you're never getting any sleep, or you're abusing methamphetamines and you're never going to grow any muscle, that might not be up to the stimulus, right? But at least on the stimulus side, you know you're doing a good job. And if you're not getting all the check marks where you should be, you know, there's something left to be desired. And there are ways to make sure those check marks are hit more than that. I love it. Yeah, I think uh, I think the whole conversation of soreness and muscle damage is confusing for a lot of people because so much came out that not necessarily fear mongering, but like telling people to never go to failure. And, and sure. I think that pushed people to get to not close enough to failure. Um, sure. And I've, I've heard you say it multiple times too, like muscle damage is just, it's a proxy to let you know that you're probably growing or doing something. It's a good sign. It's, it's part of the at process. At least doing enough, maybe too much, but at least enough. Yeah. yeah. So fill me in more about this exact thing. Are you guys doing a study? Are you just starting to record data for it? Like how is this? So... I've been recording data in one capacity or another for a very, very long time. Uh, but this is more of a theoretical framework for how folks should think or can think about their training. And it can be really, really instructive. So if you'd like, I could just start going by each time scale and sort of describing how this process would work, what you're looking for. And at the end of each time scale, if you want to shoot me some questions or tell me, keep going, uh, does that sound okay? Yeah, perfect. Let's do it. Okay, super. So here we go. Uh, the first time scale is the repetition. Okay, 
what could you possibly get out of one repetition as far as information? And here's what I mean. You sit on the light press, you set up your stance, you do one rep, you go up and you go down, first down, you go down and then up. Okay. As soon as you've done one full rep, you now have some information that is going to indicate how much hypertrophy doing more reps like this in a program over the months is going to cause. What? That's nonsense, right? But hold on a second. Imagine that you do a rep. Your target is the quads. On the way down and on the way up, you feel a phenomenal amount of tension in your adductors and your hamstrings. Not a thing in your quads. How confident are you that if you just robot locked yourself in and did more reps like that, that you're going to get huge quads, as big of quads as you could? What, what do you think, Cody? Would you be like, yeah, definitely? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not the best. Probably not. Probably not. So our first indicator is the perception of tension in the target muscle. Imagine now you, you did one rep like that because it's a new leg press. Your gym got a new leg press or you're traveling somewhere. You don't know where to put your feet because you have no idea how the machine works, right? The specifics of it. You do one rep and you're like, mm, nope, that's hamstrings and adductors. You take your feet and you put them down further and closer together and open up like this and you do another rep. All of a sudden, there's a huge tension felt through your quads. Not only this, at the, well, I'll get, so, so okay, so huge tension felt in your quads and you're like, okay, now this is targeting my quads. How much stimulus do you get out of one rep? Not much, but if I kept doing this, the amount of stimulus would summate in my quads and probably cause good hypertrophy. So right away, that first time scale of detecting tension in the target muscle is actionable, which is why you see bodybuilders switching their grips after doing a couple of reps, switching their stances after doing a couple of reps on a new machine because like, nope, don't feel that in my lats. Nope, don't feel that in my forearms. Nope, don't feel that in my biceps, but I'm supposed to. So they switch their grips, they switch their positions, they switch the angle, and all of a sudden they're getting tension in the right quad. Here's another consideration you can get just from one rep or certainly several reps. Are you getting through a full range of motion and feeling a deep stretch in your muscle at the bottom and a peak contraction at the top? If you're in the leg press, you might actually feel tension in your quads, but like the seat's tilted wrong or your feet are too weird on the platform and you're not able to do a full range with your quads. You're like, I definitely feel it in my quads, but I could do more range of motion. Now, all of a sudden, one rep later, you rack, like this is exactly what warm-ups are for, right? To get you to feel this whole process. Just one rep, you're like, okay, I'm gonna stop because this feels all wrong. You take the, the play, the uh, what's it called? The seat and the back of the leg press, you lower it. And then you put your feet even lower on the platform. And all of a sudden, not only are you getting crazy tension through your quads, but you're able to stretch your quads fully under that tension at the bottom, which is hugely correlative for hypertrophy, and get a peak contraction at the top. And now you're like, wow, really? This rep, just one rep or two or three is all you need to figure out, okay, am I locked into the good technique that I want or not? And this is a, a never-ending discovery process where you'll adjust rep to rep. Like sometimes you dumbbell press, right? You're going up and down and you start to get a little too close and bend your elbows in too much. And you're like, mm, I felt that more in my triceps. And then you open up and flare your elbows. You're like, ooh, now that I feel in my pecs, right? This perception of tension in the target muscle, especially when a big stretch is involved, is a really good permanent guide. Every single repetition, it refreshes to tell you, okay, great. Okay, great. Okay, great. Or, okay, great. Okay. Now I don't know what you're doing and now you're an idiot and now you're just going to get hurt. Right? So you've seen people, I'm sure do squats for hypertrophy, sets of 10. 
even if they start out with good technique, some people at the end of it are doing some kind of weird rebirth, good morning, satanic ritual. And you're like, man, do you really feel a ton of tension in your quads through that whole squat? And a lot of times, you know, feeling tension in the quads is like, it's a little disturbing, right? Because not only are you not as strong as you could be, because if you used your back too, you could lift more weight, but also like feeling a ton of deep tension in your quads could be a different weird feeling for people not used to it. And so people end up beginning a squat set with all the right intentions. I'm going to feel this in my quads and they have great technique to do that. And thus the quads produce the most tension and stimulate the most hypertrophy in themselves. But there's a temptation sometimes to get away from really hammering in the quads. And all of a sudden you're sort of trying to split the load between your quads and your glutes and your back. And then you get to still do more reps, but your quads are getting incrementally less and less work with every single rep. And that's not good. So not only does the ability to detect tension in the target muscle allow us to check the box of, okay, where our technique is fundamentally sound at the beginning with this rep, doing more and more reps lets us over the course of multiple reps say, okay, is this tension still going where I want it to go? And if it's yes, if it's not, then my technique has been slipping and I need to readjust it. Is, is this like a good argument for, I mean, so there's a few things I actually wanted to ask you today. Um, and one of them I heard you speaking on, I want to say it was Steve's podcast recently. You, were you guys were talking about basically angling your feet and stuff like that for a squat. Um, but there's a lot of people that will say it doesn't matter. Close stance, wide stance, toe straight, toes out. It doesn't matter. Like full range of motion volumes, all that matters. Do you think there's an argument to chase uh, a certain joint angle for more time under tension, more range of motion, like things like that, because it's just a signal or like, do you really think it really, it does just come down to volume. And I think you're a good person to ask this because you were kind of like the, the volume guy because you brought like the volume landmarks and that was such a staple in the industry, but you've been talking a lot lately about technique and form and execution, which I think is sure. good because it reminds people that it's not just volume. Sure. So I think the, the, the folks uh, that say it's just volume um, and, and just do a full range of motion, uh, they're like 90% correct and 10% wrong which is a great, great start, but they could, we could all do better than that, right? So the 90% correct is like, look, if you're doing deep knee bends, right, which is what squats are originally called, uh, with, uh, you know, with heavy weight and lots of reps, like you just, biomechanically, you have to be using your quads to a large capacity. And thus, you know, whether your feet are a little wider, a little narrower, as long as you're squatting deep, you're, you're going to be getting great gains. Now, there are different ways of squatting deep. You could do low bar squat deep. You could do high bar squat deep. You could do slightly wider, slightly narrower. And that ends up targeting your quads a bit more or a bit less, your hamstrings a bit more, a bit less, your lower back, your glutes, and your adductors. And if you really want quad hypertrophy out of the squat, there is going to be a technique for you that hits the quads the most and everything else not as much. Um, provides the, the highest raw stimulus magnitude to your quad. So in that case, that for those particular foot positions that you were talking about, they do matter. Now they matter like 10%, not 90. 90% means you bend over with the bar on your back. That's it. Uh, but that 10% matters because, you know, listen, if you're trying to get as much muscle as you can, especially in the context of fatigue, right? Because low bar squats grow your quads probably almost as much as high bar squats, except you pay like double the fatigue costs. So you can't do as many of them. And then over time, they don't grow your quads as much. So Yes, there is absolutely something to making sure to place your feet in very particular positions, specifically with what's uh, the been uh, I've been describing as the stimulus to fatigue ratio. How much stimulus are you getting to your quads versus how much fatigue are you getting usually to the rest of your body or how do your joints and connective tissues feel? 
if you do a squat and with wide stance, like someone shows you and you're like, my knees hurt this way. And then you do it with close and you're like, my knees feel great. That bad response would be like, it doesn't matter how your knees feel. Like what really? Like, so just going to keep squatting. My knees are going to hurt more and more and more. And then I'm just not gonna be able to squat. Like, yeah. I don't know. I didn't even know what they'd say. Right. So uh, I think the, the refutation though, of the point, the really, really good point that people make when they say, look, it's just like full range of motion and uh, foot position doesn't matter is, uh, foot position probably even matters for which parts of your quads get development, but it matters such a tiny amount that, you know, people will say like, people have like these barely there legs that like, if you put on a pair of jeans, people don't even know you have legs. And they'd be like, what, what angle should I be using for my feet on a hack squat? So shut the fuck up, dude. You need to squat, hack squat. But the better answer is you need a hack squat with whatever is comfortable and whatever you feel in your quads. And then when you're really, really big and your quads are worth perfecting, then you can start to worry about angles and stuff like that. And you can worry about during if you want, but just make sure you're at least executing that heavy basic range of motion over and over. And then the particulars matter very well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's, it, there's just a hierarchy. And then you breaking down that first stage of, of assessing every single rep, I think is helpful too, because before you start adding in um, even more into your training and advanced strategies and, and start really tampering with even increasing volume, you should probably figure out the fundamentals, do the full, yeah. figure out your joint position that feels good for you. Yes. And then add well, cause like, cause like, that's a great, great, great point, Cody is like, Volume of what, you know, yeah. it's almost like saying like, okay, the most important thing as a brew hall that we can do is put out beer because people buy a lot of beer and they give us a lot of money for beer. Like, okay, what kind of beer? Like, ah, it doesn't matter. Just fill the kegs with whatever. I'm like, Ugh. I feel like people won't buy a lot of it if it sucks. <laughs> so maybe really work on your brew and really get a great beer together. And then when you have a great beer, then you can scale the volume, right? So the same way with squats and stuff. It's like, like if your squats are all dog shit, more volume is just going to get you more hurt knees and hips and torn adductors, and then good luck getting big quads that way. But if your squats are golden, man, each each rep costs a lot of quad growth, not a whole lot of else of anything else, and then all of a sudden you're you're building, and then the volume actually counts for something really good. Would you, do you think this would apply for uh, pre fatiguing as well? And and what I mean by that is, so pre fatiguing was like really really popular back in the day it was like I, I remember doing it all the time and then there came this point where people were like no it's gonna like destroy your performance and your volume's gonna go down so it's pointless you've actually recently been talking about it again and made some really good points but do you think that pre-fatiguing would be disadvantageous if you didn't understand your own positioning first because if you oh my god absolutely your quads and then you go into a squat that sucks for you you're still going to feel your quads and you think that it's a good squat but it's not does that make sense uh, for sure also something worse could happen you could start to squat away from your quads like leaning back a ton cutting depth pushing your butt back uh leaning or sorry leaning forward pushing your butt back and all of a sudden widening your stance so that you pre-fatigued your quads doing leg extensions, which could have been a good thing in context. But now the way you're squatting is to try to get away from activating your quads. So what you should really do is be very diligent. If you're going to pre-fatigue your quads, I probably wouldn't do it with leg extensions. I would do it with like leg press or something. Let's say those leg extensions, once your quads are fairly fucked up, when you go to squats, squat as strictly as possible, what I call into your quads. Like literally make sure when you squat, the quads do this, your knees do that, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God. When you think to yourself, man, if I just leaned back a little or sat back, I could get more reps. Don't sit forward, go close to failure by really squeezing the fucking living juice out of your quads. And then you will get great quad hypertrophy. But if you use a pre-exhaust and then you try to squat away from your quads, you'll accomplish two things. One, you will lower the amount of weight you're squatting and thus the overall stimulus of exercise is going to suck. And two, you're going to not really push your quads super hard on the squat. So 
the pre-exhausted more or less nothing. I love it. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely good. To, yeah, pre-exhausting is something that you you should use when your technique and mind muscle connection is really really well established. And perceiving the tension in your muscle is a big part of mind muscle connection. The second part of mind muscle connection is what we can use in evaluating an entire set. And while rep to rep we can perceive tension, for higher rep sets especially, you probably need a whole set to figure out what the target muscle really is relatively to others. For example, if you're using you know a set of five to ten reps. For the first rep, you can tell exactly what muscles are being activated. Like, okay, that's definitely my quads, right? But for higher rep stuff, like you do a lunge, someone like with your body weight, let's say you can do 30 lunges maximum before you fail, or like with, you know, 50 pounds or something. Somebody could be like, all right, you do like one lunge, they're like, where do you feel that? You're like, I wouldn't say I feel that anywhere. Like, it's a lunge, it's not that hard. Like, when you walk, do you feel your legs? Like, no, I hope not, right? Like, you know, shit's happening. I can't tell exactly the muscle. How can you tell exactly what muscle with higher reps? Well, you know what's uh, being taxed to the limit is what's burning, right? So if you're doing a set of bicep curls with 20 reps, if your biceps are not on fire by the end, and if your forearms are on fire, ah, man, you know, is that really, a, are your biceps really a limiting factor? Because remember, the target muscle going close to failure is what causes the most growth. If your forearms are almost at failure, but your biceps technically are good for another six reps and you stop, you're doing six RIR training for your biceps. Now, for your bicep curl, you're doing, let's say, zero RIR. Like, you're, you went to failure because your forearms couldn't do anything. But are you expecting that to grow your biceps? Well, do you normally expect your muscles to grow from six RIR? Not really. So you're going to say, like, oh, man, like, I don't get a lot out of my curls using, you know, like, for biceps. Like, I just don't like curls. And somebody could be like, yes, that is exactly correct based on the fact that you're actually training your forearms. So then how do you experiment with the technique and modalities of dumbbells versus barbells versus different grips? Well, you find one of those that towards the end of a 20 rep set, the burn is in your biceps. It is debilitating and it's, it's just painful as shit. At the end of one of those sets, if someone comes up to you and be like, you know, those turn, don't train biceps, right? You could be like, that's nice. Wrong. How the hell am I accumulating shitload of lactate in my biceps if I'm not using them, right? Like that would be insane. So uh, we have the one rep time scale already covered of tension perception. Now we have the whole one set covered. And how do you tell if a set is hypertrophic? Well, if all the reps were tension in the right place for heavy, perfect. And if all of the reps summed up to the higher rep sets uh, being, you know, the burn is felt in the target muscle, then we know for higher rep sets that that's probably the target. Uh, imagine uh, doing a chest fly machine for the first time, new machine, and you're doing a high rep set close to failure for pecs. And at the end of this, when you go to failure, you get off the machine, someone's like, so we think great for your chest. You're like, okay, my front delts are on fire. My pecs, do you, are you going to put your money in the jar that says this is a great chest exercise? Probably not, right? And physiologically, probably not, because your front delts probably just limited your ability. And then your chest was like, eh. And even, even if your chest feels pretty burned up towards the end, but your front delts burn the entire time, that means your chest sort of got in towards the end and sort of just pushed your front delts across the finish line. Your front delts got the, the majority of the work, right? So, so in that case, we can use one set is now instructive because we have uh, the burn. Uh, tension perception and the burn tells us one set uh, is good to go. And the next time scale is multiple sets. So how do we tell for multiple sets? Well, one thing we can tell is the pump. Okay, if you are doing multiple sets of an exercise and it is not increasing the intracellular or the, the whatever, just the total volume of the muscle you're training, you're not getting a pump, 
Is it possible that you're robustly stimulating hypertrophy? Yes, it's possible. Some muscles don't get pumped all that much. You can grow without a pump. But the pump has been mechanistically linked to hypertrophy, like actual cell swelling causes muscle growth. And it's probably related to the degree of disruption you're, uh, you're given. And it's also a targeting feature. So for example, let's say you do four sets of some kind of incline press on a machine. You know, some machines are built weird. Four sets later, your shoulders are pumped as shit. Your triceps are like huge, but your pecs are like, meh. Are you going to go betting that it's a great chest stimulus? Like, I don't know, man. Like something, your chest just doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot because it would be pumped if it was. And uh, there's another way to compare. So let's say you're comparing two exercises. They both give you a great pump in your biceps. One of them, it takes two sets for the pump to be like ridiculous. And one, it takes six. What's the better exercise on just stimulus? Man, I mean, we all have those exercises, right? Where like two were fucked up. Like, man, that's probably a good exercise. You know, versus like, have you ever used any machines, Cody, where you're like on the thing for like 15 minutes and someone's like, what is that training? You're like, to be honest, I have no idea. <laughs> like, I, like some cable, like some uh, cable row setups. I'm like, I, I could just be at home, like smoking a cigarette, probably getting more hypertrophy than sitting on the stupid machine. <laughs> And it's funny because a lot of the, these things we're talking about, stimulus indicators, when you use a machine, uh, sometimes you get the feeling that the people designing the machines just had no idea what lifting weights was all about. Have you ever been on a machine where you're like, who made this? Yeah, absolutely. It's just terrible. It's like, it's like a, an engineer's worst nightmare should be someone looks at their work, uses it, and just goes, awful. <laughs> like, is you just shame your head in shame. So, so all of these indicators, pump included, can tell us both which exercises are maybe a little bit more hypertrophic than others on average. And also, how do we change our technique from one to the other? Like if, if, you, if you point your hands one way on a bench and it gives you a crazy shoulder pump, you point your hands another way on a, on a pressing machine and it gives you a big pack pump, then, you know, after a couple sets, then you have that. And notice we have multiple time courses or multiple time scales so far. You're using a new machine and you're trying to figure out how it works to get your chest the best as opposed to triceps or front delts. And you're playing with the grips. You can play with your grips rep to rep. You can play with your grips set to set now and at every juncture, or with heavy weights and with light weights. And at every juncture, you can tell, okay, am I on the right track or not? Because if you're using a machine and it, you know, you perceive a ton of tension in your pecs and your pecs burn at higher rep ranges and your pecs get a super crazy pump gee whiz, you know, you're probably onto something with that machine. Whereas if you are using the machine, and despite all your best efforts, five sets later, you barely feel any tension in your pecs. There's no burn in your pecs and higher reps. Because sometimes you're like, man, maybe it's a loading issue, right? So you do three sets and you don't feel shit in your pecs. You're like, let me drop the weight and see if I can catch a pump or like see if I can feel a burn with lightweight. So you try that and it still doesn't do shit. Uh, and your front delts fire out. And then all of a sudden you're not even pumped. You're pumped in your front delts, not your chest. Man, you know, it's, it, that machine, you've given it a due course and it might not be causing hypertrophy. If you fly completely blind, and here's a real, real big, big picture uh, underlying point here of this whole talk. If you're flying completely blind and you're like, I am evidence-based, I evaluate only after results come in. It's nice. It's a good notion. You could do a mesocycle or two or three of a chest machine that biomechanically looks like it should be stimulating your pecs by ignoring the pump and saying it doesn't matter, by ignoring tension perception and saying it doesn't matter, by saying the burn has nothing to do with muscle growth. And at the end of the day, you may discover after three months of training that you barely grow any chest size, but you should have known that after one session, you could have been like, man, you know, I should be changing something. Does that make sense? Like we could be doing better than just waiting for months on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you mentioned a couple times just 
this idea of, of chasing a burn and chasing pump and RIR and stuff like that. What is your recommend, recommendation to people? Or how do you break down RIR to people? Because sometimes we'll say, you know, like one to two RIR, two to three is like you're still in that stimulus range. But I think some people don't truly understand what that is. You know, like sometimes I'll even say like, hey, gun to your head, RIR too. Like it's like a, you know, like life or death squats. You have two reps. Um, or even if you watch some of the, the videos where you take people through like a full leg day or a full back day. And I can't remember the guy's name, but he's a beast, a strong man. And Joey, yeah. And he's just like smashed afterwards. Um, sure. So do you like, where is that gauge when we're doing all this stuff and like making sure we're getting close enough to failure? Because I think that's part of being able to really activate and stimulate that muscle enough. Yeah. Yeah. So actually I have a pretty decent answer to that. The, the truth of the matter is you won't really know where that is until you explore it. So there's no one trick I can give you that you're like, you've been training two week, like two easy your whole life. And here's this one trick to really just go all the way to zero RIR and find out. Because what people will say sometimes is, you know, beginners should do zero RIR training just to feel what that's like. Maybe or they just lie to themselves the entire time. Also, beginners should be learning good technique and not going super close to failure because super close to failure technique breaks down. So let's say you're an intermediate lifter and now you're ready to push it. You don't think you're going to true close to failure like you should be. It's actually quite simple. What you do is, and I have a, a whole YouTube video on this coming out soon. Yeah, actually just came out today. I got to share. I think, well, God, I hope I got the right text from my uh, YouTube guy. Um, so here's what you do. You start a mesocycle at, you know, what your best guess of three RIR is, right? Like right around there. Okay, you did, let's say uh, you did a chest press machine. We'll just keep it super simple. Chest press machine for 100 pounds. And you thought like 15 reps is all you could do. And you stopped at 12. Like, and you thought, okay, like I, I could probably do three, but maybe no. And maybe you're right or maybe you're wrong. So then you come back the next week to do the same machine and you put 105 pounds on the selectorized stack. And uh, your goal now is because you know you want to progress through RIRs with every week of your meso, you want to do like a two to three RIR. And then the week after, you're going to do like a one to two RIR. And the week after that, you're going to do like a one to zero RIR. And then the last week, let's say fifth week, you're going to do true zero RIR. How do you know you're not bullshitting yourself? Well, look at this way. You put on five pounds out of the machine. You got 12 reps last time on the first set. If we're taking only five pounds putting on the machine, which is not that much, and we are doing, uh, you know, two to three RIR as opposed to three, let's say just for ease of explanation, two RIR now. In what world would that be less than 12 reps? It wouldn't, because if you did, let's say 11 reps, you're like, that, that, that was for sure two RIR. Like really? You got weaker or just putting five more pounds in the bar cost you a whole fucking rep? No way. So let's say you do 105. You now walk into the gym with 105 on the bar, that chest press machine. Your minimum goal is 12. And if you feel a little cocky, you can do one or two more. You get to 12 for sure. And you, after 12, you sort of just for a split second in your head or even on the way, you think, I'm sure you think during your reps, right, Cody? Like, you're like, okay, like, eh, like I'm still doing these and I know I have three more, right? So right around rep 12, you're like, okay, is this really two RIR or is it not? Because remember, it's a little bit more weight. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Let's say you get 13 reps. 13 is now your new standard. Next week, let's say you go to one RIR. It's at least 13. It's 110 pounds now because you should be accumulating a little bit of strength just from neural adaptation alone. And even if you're accumulating no strength at all, you know, just RIR drop 
110 at, you know, one RIR should be like 13 reps. Even if 105 at two RIR was, uh, was 12 reps, right? It was also 13 reps because one RIR is five pounds. There's no way you drop one rep and it costs you like 20 pounds or something like that, right? So you have this sort of minimum standard that you've set for yourself, at least now 13 reps. So the next week you're doing 110, you at least 13. And maybe you're lying to yourself. And that was really five RIR again. But that's cool because you're getting stronger, right? The next week, you're going to do 115 pounds, at least 13 reps. How long, in my question, is let's say, okay, you finish and you're like, well, that was my last week of deload or before deload. I got 13 reps at zero RIR, so I said. But it really wasn't zero because I knew I had more reps in me, right? Sweet. You don't even need to try to go all out. Just remember your reps, deload, come back next time, put 120 pounds on the bar. Minimum 13, because you got 13 with 115 at zero RIR. Now you should, that should, you know, you got a deload, your fatigue is lower. Now that should be, again, two or three, and then go up again. So one of two things will happen after one or two mesocycles, almost certainly never three. One of two things. One, You'll either get infinitely strong forever, sweet, and you'll never hit failure. You're like Superman lifting weights. He like lifts 500 kilos, then 1,000, then the planet. He's like, right? <laughs> either that will happen or eventually trying to match that baseline number of 13, which is what you set for yourself, or whatever you do next on your next reps. Let's say you hit 14 one week, now 14 is your minimum. Match that number of 13. You just keep going up in weight. Sooner or later, you will not be able to reach 13, no matter how fucking hard you try, and that will be failure. So the best way to find failure is to start at three RIR, set yourself a rep minimum that you get right there, your first guess of 12 or whatever it was. And then after that, you add a little bit of weight to the bar or add reps or both. And every time you get to a new level, that's your new baseline. And you push a little bit further each time or at least match it. And as the training gets harder, because it has to, you're putting weight on the bar or you're adding reps. At some point, you won't be able to do what you have before, and you will reach technical failure where you have to drop the weight on yourself. That's it. Problem solved. And I think a lot of people, they make the mistake of pewing pure point-in-time RIR training where they'll say, okay, today's goal is RIR 2. Last week's was RIR 3. I don't care what I did last week because I could be feeling a little different today. I could be more energy or less energy. I'm going to train to RIR 2 today. Last week, they did RIR 3. It was, let's say, sets of 12 on average. This week, RIR2, they felt like that's so great, so it sets a nine. What the fuck? You get three reps weaker, dropping one rep in reserve? That means you lost two reps to somewhere. No way. And I mean, maybe, but what if you're just lying to yourself, right? So that match or beat rep and weight system that I just described, that's the way to find out, am I really getting close to failure like I thought I was? So yes, auto-regulate, but I prefer to auto-regulate on volume as opposed to auto-regulate on relative intensity so or, or a rep number. Uh, I don't want to change the weight I'm doing. I don't want to change the reps week to week. I might do less volume if I'm not recovering or take a deload. But if I'm recovering, I want the same rep goals, those minimum goals, and then we go closer and closer and closer until we either reach failure and now we know, hey, this is great, uh, or we get stronger forever, which is a sweet problem to have. So, so that's it. And that takes care of the problem. People say, well, I don't know if I'm getting close enough to failure. Just keep, set a minimum rep standard to yourself for the first week and keep going up in weight. You will find out sooner or later uh, where your true failure point is. There's no other way around. 
Yeah, I think, you know, like one thing I've noticed too is when people ask that question and I say, are, are you tracking your IR across all your sets every day of the week for multiple weeks? It's like, well, not always. It's like, well, then you don't know. Like if, you, right. if you're sitting there and actually judging every set and sitting there writing down, because I even know for me, like, uh, for example, putting weight on the bar, doing sets of eight with a two RIR, and then the next week not having a rep count, but saying I'm going to go to one RIR and I'm just going to do as many reps as I can to one RIR. Like that helps me gauge and be like, oh, I was just being a puss last week. Like I need to totally go heavier, and this is what that looks like. Totally. And I think the better, the 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 best way to do that, in my view, is have those reps from last week, and when you reach them, as a minimum. You really quickly real talk yourself like, okay, is this really two RIR or do I have two or three more? Because I'll do that like uh, every other week. I'll be like, last week I got 15 and it was really two RIR. And I'll get 15 this week with five pounds more and be like, man, I'm so I'm trying to get one RIR now. I'm like, I'm not at one RIR. And I'll do two more reps and still be a one RIR on rack and be like, okay. So, and, and there's where that our regulation plays in too. Like sometimes you get more reps, sometimes you have fewer. But if you set your bottom end at, okay, there's no way either I get 12 or I'm failing then you will for sure run into failure. What you don't want is to send a completely open parameters on our regulation. Like, well, if I feel like I'm too or I are, I'll just stop. It's so easy to talk yourself in to going way shy of failure, especially on systemically taxing compound heavy basics. Like almost every time I squat heavy or pull heavy or press heavy, like I look at the weights I'm supposed to do and I'm like, man, how the fuck did I do 10 reps last week? There's no way I'm supposed to be doing that. But like, after you warm up and after you get in the zone and psychologically, you're like, I can do this because I just did last week. And I have to go a little bit beyond. Fuck a 400 pound for 10 squat. I'm doing 405 today. You get under it and you get it done. If you just did RIR, it's so easy to be like, well, I guess I just got six reps today at 405. Like, yeah, but you could have squeezed one more out. And how do you know you weren't squeezing them out until you really, really tried? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think your, your mind and your muscles have two different perceptions of RIR as well, especially for squats. That's always the case with me. I always have to stop and ask myself, like, is it just my mind telling me I don't want to squat anymore? Or is it like actually my quads are fatigued? And the answer is never my quads are fatigued yet. So I keep going, but, um, I think that's perfect. Uh, okay. So we've, we've kind of gone over, uh, what we're looking for in a rep. We've gone over what we're looking for in a set and multiple sets is the next step, a full session. Next one's a full session, and the way you can tell that is uh, sort of two ways. Uh, well, there's a bit more detail here to flesh out in the longer talk, but um, the fundamental thing we're looking for is disruption of the target muscle. There's sort of two ends of a spectrum on how to do that. One is how weak and uncoordinated and crampy do the muscles feel sort of right after. And then another one is how much soreness occurs in the muscle in the hours or days after. And this isn't one of those that like has to be there, but if it is, that's a good thing. And it's not like the more the better, but if you have some, you know, you're at least on the right track. If you have none, it's like a pass fail system in, in college, right? Like if you, you can fail it or you can pass it. And there's, there's no such thing as the more is better here. So here's what I mean. If you think you did a hard quad session, and you up, hop, skip up and down the stairs afterwards, you didn't do a hard quad session. How the hell are your quads still functioning normally? Clearly did not exert themselves to any capacity that approaches their ceiling. So remember the overload principle, almost by definition, is pushing to within your system's ability of 
of max, like pushing close to the maximum. It doesn't mean more than the maximum. It just means in that rarefied air where you know adaptations are being signaled because your body doesn't get more jacked, just move it around. So if you push your quadriceps too close to their limits for enough volume to grow, there's going to be a price to pay. They're going to be fucked up. And if they're not at all fucked up, you got some problems. You, you may be underdoing it and, and not doing enough. So if you can't uh, walk normally, that's a pretty decent sign that you're at least doing enough. Now, could you be doing too much? Yes, totally. So that, that's for sure a thing. Uh, if you quads get sore, like they get delayed onset muscle soreness, did you understimulate them? For the love of God, almost certainly not. Could you have overstimulated them? Yes. That's a whole different talk for another day on fatigue and soreness being too much and competing with uh, recovery of, of damage for, for actual adaptation. Totally. But if you're a person who has a problem stimulating your chest or problem stimulating your quads and all of a sudden something you've done gets you delayed onset muscle soreness, man, your problem is definitely not understimulating it. It may be overstimulating, which is a good problem to have if you've been struggling. It's like, it's like um, your problem is beginning lean enough and now you're too lean. That's not really a problem. I mean, it's definitely a problem. Technically, you could like you know, need poor health or just really out of energy, but it's certainly an easy problem to fix, right? Same way as like, oh man, you're, my, my quads are getting too messed up from training. Like, great, just cut your sets in half and you're good to go, right? So disruption as sort of proxied by, here's another one, uh, crampiness, right? Like if you trained your biceps in a, a new way that you haven't tried before. Uh, you sort of uh, went into doing more sets. Let's say you, that, that was the problem was you were understimulating volume wise. And like you try to brush your teeth later and your bicep cramps on you. Like you could say a lot of things about that workout, but that the biceps weren't sufficiently stimulated is probably not one of them. Does that mean that you need to go and get sore every time and you need to have your biceps cramp and you need to be able to not walk down the stairs with your quads? Absolutely not. Because in hypertrophy training, it's very easy to do too much. Too much of that, and now you've created so much muscle damage and disruption that your body spends most of its resources healing from that versus supplying hypertrophy. There's definitely a competitive thing there. It's been demonstrated in a few studies pretty well. So we're not saying this is like soreness is the path to growth or you need to be able to like not be able to like, you know, get out of bed and you successfully had a good chest workout. But what we're saying is if you're having trouble stimulating a muscle group and you never feel any of those things, you could probably do more in some capacity or changing your training approach somehow to get some of that stuff. So now we have, you know, for each rep we do, we have a sensation of, are we doing a good job? For each set, we have a sensation. After multiple sets with the pump, we have a sensation of, are we doing a good job? Now after workout, including right after, because you're like, if your pec is, pecs are really wobbly right after, like, yeah, for sure, I did a good job. Uh, and sometimes that can even tell us if we're, whether or not to keep going. So for example, you don't know how many chin sets of chest you want to do today. You've done three sets. Your chest isn't pumped at all, and it's not like weak, or it doesn't feel weird, and it's not crampy. You know, you could probably do more safely and be just fine. After it gets a nice solid pump, uh, you know, you probably feel free to go. And if your chest is maximum peak pumped, and it's now super crampy, and it like feels super weird, and you can't even reach over to like touch your own ear, if someone's like, "Dude, let's do more chest," you got to wonder if you're on the other side of that curve at that point and just causing more damage than this. Really good. I think whatever it is you were going to get out of chest hypertrophy, you already got right. You checked that box, right? And if you heal fast, you can just do chest more frequently. It's definitely not not enough training. So we're up to that time course. So not only is it like, can we check mark a workout as good, but we can actually figure use the system to figure out when our workout should be over, right? And people say like, "Well, what about like if I take a big deload and I'm really not used to training my chest?" 
wouldn't my chest get pumped really quickly and get super sore? Like, yeah, which is exactly the technical thing is your MEV, matter of fact, volume drops after a period of detraining. So you expect that you don't need to do as much work for your chest to get it really big. Also, this, this explains um, something really cool, the difference between beginner and advanced rates of adaptation. For, for someone super advanced to grow their chest, how many sets do you think they need to get a real huge pump and get actually sore? Uh, or like disruption, you know, like actually like, oh my God, my chest is cramping. Fuck, 10 sets, 15 sets per session or something for really elite level guys. What about for someone who's a beginner? Dude, I know people who from one set, the first set ever of pushups in their life, they will get chest cramps and their chest will get sore for three days. You'd be like, well, doesn't that, that's exactly what we would expect. Those beginners grow easy. And this clearly evident from this, this uh, framework that we have. So after that, that's the main one. And then over the weeks of training, you know, for healing soreness on time or healing disruption on time or having great performances, like if we're uh, basically able to perform at or above our normal level and increase volume slowly, we're doing a good job. And then the last one is after a mesocycle of training, you take a deload, you let the fatigue wash away. If you're getting stronger for reps in the next mesocycle, you're probably getting bigger. If you're not getting stronger for reps, you have some serious questions to ask. Now, to be honest, the most indicative one of those is the mesocycle scale one. If you feel dick, nothing anywhere, but you're getting stronger for reps in the exercises that target the muscles, your muscles are probably getting bigger. Although there's an exception to that. If it's a compound muscle group, for example, someone could get stronger in the bench press and their pecs could get no bigger at all just because the front delts and triceps got bigger, right? So that's definitely like, we don't want to use just exercise and exercise, but if it's an isolation exercise, and especially if it's multiple exercises involving that muscle, like so your dumbbell press went up, your dumbbell fly went up, your cable fly went up, your chest machine press went up, and your barbell press went up, your pecs probably got bigger, right? So, and, and that's definitely the most solid indicator. But if you use all of these indicators, not only can they come together and give you a real good sensation of if you're growing muscle or not, because if they're all in the same line, like they're all, they're all green, and I'll say, okay, everything's good. Yeah, that's good. If some of them are off, you could probably do a better job of training. And the best part, is because some of them only take one rep of analysis to accomplish and some of them take longer and longer and longer at every stage of your training process you can both know how much stimulus you're probably supplying and tool it and retool it and retool it to keep it high and make sure you're always doing a really really good job yeah i like that it kind of just gives in every scenario like a i mean essentially a gauge or a scale to, yeah, to like it. reassure you like you're doing the right thing or it's like going the right way. And I'm sure if the, the rep is, is in the right place, the session is in the right place, the sets are in the right place. Like you can kind of know that the, by the end of the muscle cycle, you're probably going to be in a good place. So like you said earlier, don't just wait for that end of mesocycle to like decide, like, did that work? Like look right. at all these indicators to make sure you're going in the right direction, not wasting your time. Right. And there's an easy example, just two extreme examples. You know, you could say to someone, someone let's say has their nutrition really, really good. And you know that they have a recovery really, really good, the supplements and so on and so forth. And they're complaining to you that their chest hasn't grown, even though they wanted to bring up their chest. You can ask them like, okay, so have you been feeling tension? Like in the exercises you've been doing for low reps? Like not really, I don't feel my chest much. Okay. What about for high reps? Do you feel a burn in your chest? Like, no, not really. Okay. Do you get pump in your chest? Like, no, not really. Like 10 sets later, I feel barely anything. Okay, does your chest get really super tired and fatigued and disrupted and sore after training? No, I never get sore. I never, my chest always just keep going. And, uh, you know, have you gotten stronger over the, you know, month or two that we've been training, especially after deloading and dropping fatigue? And they're like, no, my chest doesn't got any stronger. Um, you got one, two problems, potentially. One, 
their training sucks and could use a lot of improvement, or two, they're genetically they're just done growing and that's it. Right? That's really the only two options because clearly what they're doing on the recovery side, the sleep side, and so on and so forth is, is not the limiting factor. It's just like their training is awful, right? Uh, and even the genetic stuff is a really special case. They'd have to have some kind of real, really poor innervation in their chest uh, or really, really slow twitch fiber type that just is just done growing. There's just nothing you can do, right? Uh, and or much more likely is you can improve the quality of their training by checking exercise uh, execution, their exercise selection, volume management, so on and so forth. On the other hand, you can have an individual that is doing uh, uh, chest uh, work, same, same idea, and they're feeling a ton of tension uh, in every single rep. They are doing uh, crazy metabolite stuff where their chest is burning off their body. They're getting crazy pumps. They're getting crazy disruption, plenty of soreness, but they're recovering from it between each workout, so it's not overlapping soreness. And they're getting, um, you know, let's say stronger even uh, over the meso, uh, which indicates at least neural adaptations are going. But their chest isn't physically getting bigger. You can almost 100% guarantee that it's a nutritional issue because it's just not gaining weight. Uh, or, uh, you know, like uh, any kind of other sleep issue and so on and so forth, although that probably impacts strength as well, um, which is why the strength one is the best because it, it picks up on pretty much everything. But uh, you can, at that point, you can either say, look, um, you know, it's either genetics or something in your lifestyle. Because if someone told me, like, they were getting a stretch and a pump and, ev and everything, like, everything was in line, what I just said for chest, and they asked me, like, what do you think I could do better with my training? I'd be like, man. <laughs> You got me, you know, like, I, what would you say in that like, instance? Yeah, I don't know. That's a hard one. It really is. Yeah, like, I, it does not appear to me. Maybe there's some frequency stuff we could do, or maybe, like, maybe you're getting too sore. We could back off. But, but outside of little weird stuff like that, I just can't tell, you know, because people, like, they also want growth secrets, right? And this goes back to the crowd earlier they mentioned of, like, which way should I point my toes on the Smith machine so I can get the biggest outer quads? You know, I ask those guys sometimes, I'm like, like, I don't know if the Smith is targeting my quads. I'm like, do your quads burn at high reps? Like, oh my God, they're on fire. Do they get sore? They're like, oh my God, crazy sore. Do they get tension? They're like, oh my God, it feels like they're breaking apart. I'm like, There's nothing I'm going to be able to tell you about Smith machine squats that's going to make a, any difference in your quad size. I think you're very much on the right track. Now, they say, how do I do Smith machine squats? And I'm like, well, you know, do you feel your quads? I'm like, not really? Because my hips just hurt, but I don't really feel my quads. I feel my glutes a lot. Then, you know, we have very obvious obvious answer to where we're going to begin uh changing things so that they can get a good workout what do you say to people who and i'm sure you've heard this uh i don't get sore anymore because i'm an advanced yeah. like i just don't get sore anymore and i always like I, I once upon a time i would just be like oh okay shit i mean you're you're at that point yeah. but you know i've been training for nine years i still get sore um you talk sure. about this quite a bit i'm pretty sure you have some experience in the gym uh yourself so what is your like thought process on that do you think people just aren't they don't understand that rir gauge that we we talked about earlier properly um or we're just not doing enough volume okay yeah um now there's different uh you, you don't actually have to get doms to grow really well especially if you train with higher frequencies your per session magnitudes can be so small that you don't get doms but you certainly would have to be getting a palpable disruption every single time like your chest is fucked up after a session um and then uh you know okay, you might not get DOMS, but that's just because the frequency. If you lowered your frequency, you would get DOMS. If you expanded your volume, you would get DOMS. So I think that people who say they don't get sore anymore, it can be for a good reason. Uh, but a lot of times, if they haven't changed anything, 
except they just kept training the same way and they used to get sore, but they don't anymore. After a certain time of not getting sore, I would suspect that they're just undertraining the volume or effort or something like that. And a lot of times it is a combination of those factors. And a lot of times it's small, right? Uh, as you get bigger, you probably need more of a stimulus to give the same sort of effect or a similar effect. So someone could say, you know, uh, let's say they do five sets of squats and that grew their quads and got them sore for months and years. And then after a while, it didn't get them sore anymore and didn't grow their quads much anymore. Um, to me, that is an indicator that maybe, maybe, not for sure, uh, maybe do six or seven or eight sets of squats. And can you imagine if they did seven sets of squats? You're like, oh my God, I'm sore again. You're like, wow, what a fucking weird idea that you did more that your body was used to and you got uh, some kind of effect, right? So we shouldn't necessarily, and I say this pretty often nowadays, we shouldn't be chasing soreness. Uh, but we should be aware of soreness. If a muscle we have is a really struggling muscle and doesn't grow much and we've never gotten it sore, I would go on a journey to try to get it sore to see what you'd have to do to get it sore. So at the very least, you, if on your way to try to get it sore, if you grew a lot more during that time, like example, your side delts never get sore and they don't also grow. And you're like, I'm going to do one more set each week until they get fucking sore and, or, or my performance drops and you start adding sets. Three months later, your average side belt volume per week went from 10 sets a week to 20 sets a week, and your, your side delts just look way bigger, and you still haven't been able to get sore, maybe you'll never get sore, and that's okay, because of the mechanical differences and all the eccentric stuff. Uh, but look at this. You discovered that by pushing further and further, you were actually missing a whole shitload of gains, and it's actually been shown in at least one study that hard gainers typically respond better to increases in volume than decreases in volume, because you know pros will say hard gainers are people who don't recover enough like at a pro level that might be true at a very very like twig level when you start out if you're not growing you may actually just need to do more so people that never get sore uh if their muscles are not uh, sort of uh, on the larger end or if they haven't been getting gains and they for a long time or ever they have never gotten sore it's worth an exploration of slowly with me a measured way doing more uh or playing with other exercises that maybe again, stimulate the muscle with more tension, more metabolite accumulation. Maybe that way they think, okay, if I do enough volume of this, then I'll get sore. And it doesn't mean that once you've gotten sore, like, hey, I win, like it could be too much. Where you get sore once and you never get sore again because, you know, muscles, the repeated bout effect is a real thing. But if you've never even seen a muscle re remotely sore and it's something that has been struggling for you, there is a decent chance one of the many effective options of what's going on in reality is that you've just never trained it hard enough. I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I used to think, this is easily my best example in my own life. I used to think that hamstring curls were not a good exercise for hamstrings because I would do three sets of stiff-legged deadlifts or good mornings and get sore hamstrings. And I would do three sets of leg curls and I would never, never get uh, sore hamstrings from leg curls. I was like, this is stupid. But what I realized was it just wasn't doing enough volume. I started doing four, five, six sets of black curls and they got fucking sore. And I was like, oh, it's just an easier exercise. So I just have to do more of it, right? Like, so if someone says, yeah, I never get sore, but I don't care, soreness doesn't matter. And whatever volume they're doing in the training, I almost want to be like, how do you know more volume wouldn't make you more jacked? I mean, the answer is probably don't. Yeah, yeah. I think even general fatigue as a whole is is probably a good indicator too i know for me like sunday is my rest day saturday is my second leg day like when i come in the same gym, here that's exactly out. what it is like i really gotta like get in the mode to do it you know um and then i'm excited for sunday like i don't like taking rest days because i love training but by sunday i'm really excited about rest day and i think if you're not ever feeling that i think you're probably not pushing it hard enough 
I would say that is a 99% true statement, about as close as it gets. I think there's a 1% of people who are just psychotic and addicted to training and yeah. whatever. But yeah, very, very, very. But, and that's not necessarily a good thing. It's probably a bad thing. But um, I think that, it's, that that statement you just made could be framed on a wall. Like if you, if you never feel like a rest day, you're not training hard enough. That is almost certainly the case. Um, in people's later years, when they're more advanced, I wouldn't even go so far as to say if you never feel like, well, even in their intermediate days, if you never feel like a, a whole week away, you're not training hard enough. Uh, if you never feel like you need a deal. And when people are more advanced, if you never feel like an active rest phase, like several weeks away from hard training, you're not pushing it hard enough. Um, the vast majority of pro bodybuilders, both natural and, and uh, drug using, take two to four weeks almost completely off or off from training every single year. And I'll tell you what, it's not because they're not dedicated. It's not because they're lazy. Yeah. It's because they know how to push it so hard that they're elite. And because they push it that hard, it is not sustainable. So it's so funny too, because like Ronnie Coleman used to go on vacations after the Olympia season was over. And his only job was to lift weights if he wanted to, but probably not do a whole lot of that. And just eat high protein foods and eat whatever he wanted and just relax. So he'd lose weight. Like, can you imagine like doing a contest prep and then lose weight after the contest? It's like, what? Really? So he'd lose, lose muscle. Absolutely. But he would take like one to three months, I think, of that. And then he would restart his mass phase and then Olympia prep and so on and so forth. So can you imagine like a, he would like, uh, one, one thing he described was like he went on a cruise to go to like see like the Bahamas or Mexico or something. And he was on a cruise and he said like him and a, a guy who wrote the article was like a friend of his and like they went to the cruise weight room to just fuck around and just lift weights. Right? So first of all, can you imagine seeing Ronnie Coleman in a cruise weight room? What the fuck? Second, you know, the heaviest dumbbells are like eighties. So, you know, what is he going to get out of that? Like something, right? It's just for fun. I'm keeping the blood flowing. But can you imagine like being in the, uh, you know, in the, in the cruise and like looking at Ronnie Coleman and talking to him like a, like a young kid up and comer, like someone who really really hungry for muscle and be like, Hey, like, so are you training down here? Like in the cruise weight room every day? And he'd be like, nah, just like once this week. And I'm just taking it easy. Could you imagine that kid thinking like, man, like Ronnie would be so much better if he trained every day when I was on his cruise. Be like, kid, like, do you really, do you really, it's like someone wins the Nobel prize in science and they're having a champagne at the ceremony. And you're like, man, you know, you'd be a better scientist if you put that champagne down and went back to work. You'd be like, there's a balance to this. So like, I can tell you you're not a good scientist because you're not burnt out yet. So you got to get a little burnt out to know your heart. So same thing with bodybuilding. If, if you, if every year you don't feel like two weeks off of training, you need to reevaluate how hard you're training. Yeah. I like that. I think those are good examples too, because those are literally the elite of the elite. So if they're doing it, there's probably something to it. It's not coincidence. Yeah. You know? yeah. There at least might be, we might at least want to think about what they're doing and be like, huh, maybe they have a yeah. Um, great. I think we can kind of wrap it up there. I want to respect your time. That was really good. I think we went over everything and then filtered in some questions in there that were really, uh, really on point with the discussion and, and helpful to the listeners. Um, can you let everybody know where to find you and uh, if you have any content or anything you want to share? Yes. So RP plus is on the Renaissance periodization website. You can find it by going on Instagram and go to RP strength it is an online resource of tons of videos and forums and all this other stuff. We have a series called Advanced Hypertrophy Concepts and Tools, where we go over all of this stuff in super intricate detail. Uh, there will be a total of 32 lectures, each one on every separate concept of hypertrophy and advanced hypertrophy training. 
So the folks in your podcast that really like in-depth conversations like this, each one of those 32 uh, topics is roughly one hour long lectures, 32 fucking hours of lecture. That's a university course, by the way, in advanced hypertrophy. And by the way, until July 1st, RV Plus is free. So yeah. you know, give, give that a thought. I, I, you know what's funny is I was, because I'm a part of RP Plus and I highly recommend oh. it. I've been staying up to date with those lectures actually. Uh, and I saw that it was like, your account is free. And I was like, oh, sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I was paying and you guys made it. Yeah, free. yeah. It's, there you go. Because as soon as the COVID-19 thing happened, we were like, man, everyone's stuck at home. We, we got to do something because people are like, oh, I'm stuck at home. Might as well learn. And we're like, fuck it. RP Plus is free for, for two months. So there yeah. You go. That's awesome that you guys did that. I highly recommend everybody listening to go check it out because there is so much content on there. Is, is that lecture series, is that kind of, um, not maybe not exactly the book you're going to come out with, but is that kind of like? Right out of the book. Oh. Like I made those lectures literally by looking at the rough draft of the book that we had just written. Very so cool. yes, huge. If you want a preview of the book, that's where to get. So if there's stuff the lectures cover, which you're like, oh, I'd really like to just see more in depth and see that written down, that's what the book is going to be. Now, the book covers more than just those lectures, but those lectures are pulled. It's like the book is this huge theoretical framework of stuff and practical stuff. Hypertrophy concepts and tools is the practical stuff pulled out and explained how to do. Mm, okay. Yeah, I've been really excited about that book ever since I heard you mention it. Like, seems like a fucking year ago now <laughs> fucking long time ago yeah but it's very much in the works uh and it by the end of the year we promise the book will be out awesome i love it well thank you again for your time man i appreciate it my pleasure thanks for having me on i'll talk to you later before i let you go i just want to say thanks i seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me educating yourself to get better results it still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more again to get you better results. The second thing, Head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the nutrition hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.